Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jeff Prince, who is a professor and chair of business economics and public policy at Indiana University. He is also the chair of strategic management and co-director of the Institute for Business Analytics. He recently served as chief economist at the Federal Communications uh, Commission, FCC. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Gil. Great to be here. Yeah, so I want to start with... um, one of your um, slightly older papers, uh, measuring consumer preferences for video content provision via cord cutting behavior. Um, and so in which you say the television industry is undergoing a generational shift in structure. Uh, this was done in 2016. So in that context, uh, however, many demand side determinants are still not well understood. And so you model how consumers choose uh, video content um, kind of comparing the over-the-air uh, um, uh, sort of medium versus paid subscription to cable or satellite, uh, and then online streaming, um, sometimes called as uh, over-the-top uh, content provision, OTT. You want to talk a bit about um, the, the data that you used and what you may have found? Sure. So by today's standards, these data are ancient, Although I think they were particularly useful for, you know, the questions we had in mind. So these data are back in, I believe they were 2008 and 2009. Yeah. Um, but the beauty of it was, you know, the, the challenge when people were talking about cord cutting, and that's still a hot topic even to today with cord cutting, is it was hard to see a lot of action in a relatively short period of time. It's, it's kind of this, this long slog of, of gradual change. Um, but in the 0809 period, you had a bit of a jump with the financial crisis. And so you actually had quite a bit of cord cutting in our data set at that time. Yeah. It allowed us to kind of dig in a little deeper as to what might be some of the driving factors in uh, cord cutting decisions. So cord, cord cutting in this context, um, uh, Jeff, you, you mean uh, essentially um, – getting out of sort of paying subscription for cable and satellite? That's correct. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not paying for content, right? So you still, you might then switch to a streaming service, but you also might just go to only over the air. Um, But that's right. So cutting a a kind of a traditional uh, cable subscription service. Okay. Okay. And so, so clearly uh, I think internet uh, availability and bandwidth and uh, and and speed and everything else has been changing quite dramatically, and so so I guess this wasn't an option really in early two thousands, right? I I remember I'm I'm in sort of in a in a suburb uh, of Connecticut, and I remember in two thousand I had to get satellite internet <laughs> uh, because there was no wired service, uh, you know, and all of that. Uh, and all of those things have changed now, right? And so so now it's a different question almost. No, that's absolutely right. So 
I would argue the paper we're talking about is probably about as early as you could realistically look at this kind of question. Um, prior to that, it just wasn't feasible. And, and that makes a lot of sense because you didn't really see even the over-the-top options until about 2008. That's when Netflix started streaming. That's when you saw Hulu start streaming. Um, so these guys were all coming on the scene and technology driven, right? That now that it was an option, of course, they want to they want to get in on that action. Um, so I think one of the really interesting things we were able to discover is what kind of things drive people to move away from the subscription onto kind of an over-the-top model. And in a lot of ways, and this we actually had a Harvard Business Review article that followed on this, and because we were one of the earlier papers to really point to um, matching content doesn't really seem to do much. And by that, I mean, you know, you might, as Hulu or as Netflix, they might offer content, you know, that overlaps with uh, what you would get with your traditional service, right? So I could see my NBC shows, my ABC right. shows or whatever um, on the over-the-top service. That wasn't really what moved the needle. Um, and we can really demonstrate that with our data. So you could, we could see what shows people were watching before mm -hmm. the recession hit and notice whether that was a driving factor in their decision to switch to over the top because we could see was that content available and over the top or not. And we didn't see any differences in switching behavior depending on whether you were previously a watcher of over the top content or not. Um, yeah. And we use that as kind of a, uh, an idea that pushes us towards maybe it's, it's more original content. And we've seen a lot of battles on original content ever since. Hmm. That's interesting. So, you know, when I think about uh, cable, um, it's sort of structured like, and I haven't used cable for a long time, but it's sort of structured like a menu, right? You have to first get the basic subscription and then you have to start buying bundles. Um, whereas uh, uh, Netflix or Hulu or something like that, it's, it's sort of all you can eat type uh, right. mechanism. So, so do you think, you know, sort of the pricing uh, that cable had as opposed to online content also also drove that behavior or not? It's a good question. I, it's hard to say from what we've done. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things we find is that income certainly was a big driver. You know, you early on, you know, the, the main people who were dropping to go over the top or just over the air certainly were kind of on the lower income spec of the spectrum. Um, yeah. Also the younger crowd were the ones that were doing this. Um, I, I think maybe there's a, a broader answer to your question. And I, I always like to tell this to people when, you know, if you probably remember back in around like 2006, um, there was a push at the FCC and, and other entities to, to move towards a la carte pricing for cable. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the idea was simple, right? It was basically, why am I paying for stuff that I don't use? <laughs> right. And there was, there was even, you know, some cultural issues there. So people would find some content offensive. So then they didn't want that part of their, uh, their bundle. I think MTV was often uh, singled out, um, but certainly you can do others. Uh, and there were many of us, including me, that said, you know, you can do this. If you break these guys up, if, if you make this all a cart, it's, it's all going to kind of gel back together eventually. Uh, the economics behind it just push too hard for a bundle. Uh, there's just too much complementarities um, in having channels offered all together. These guys do not want to advertise to individual consumers, right? A single channel doesn't want to have to uh, try and find ways to reach customers. Hmm. They want to be part of a bundle so that you can shop in the bundle that you have. And right. it's it makes our lives easier as well. And you're seeing this with the, the streaming options now. It's like they've broken up into these individual streaming services. But as many have predicted, it's, it's really evolving into a handful of major players. Hmm. People are generally subscribing to, you know, two, three, four streaming services when they go over the top. And guess what? You're paying very similar prices to what you were paying with cable. Yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting problem. Um, so looking forward, 
forward, Jeff, you know, I wondered if there is a conditioning effect. Uh, for example, my daughter and that generation, uh, I feel like when they buy a service, they really don't like any sort of constraint on that service. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so there's a generational thing that is happening, I think. I don't know if you, if you, if you have seen that or you agree with that. Um, so generation behind us seems like, okay, I will pay X dollars for a service, but don't tell me afterward that I cannot do this and that because it's just too complex to, to manage. Uh, and if, if so, if, if that is true, uh, I think there's a lot of implications uh, for, um, you know, sort of strategic planning for these companies, right? No, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, my kids are still pretty young, so I don't think I get <laughs> in-house anecdotes just yet. But, but yeah, I think that's right. It's, I don't have a lot of strong predictions on where that's going to lead us in terms of product offerings. Um, I would say certainly it implies, you know, more kind of user control. Um, and I think that's right. And in, in fact, there's some overlap between that insight and even what I see at the university. So we've had a, a movement um, in terms of program offerings to make it more about electives and less about uh, core requirements. And I think mm. that fits into your insight that it's, they're really responding to what they're hearing from the, the consumers, which is we want more uh, personal control over the product. Um, so right. I think that, that might be a, a, a general trend that we're seeing. Yeah, that's interesting. So personal control and flexibility. So customizability yeah. appears to have a lot of value uh, for the younger generation, at least it appears. Um, I want to jump into another paper uh, in a different area altogether. So impact of mergers on quality provision, evidence from the airline industry. Um, and uh, we, we're not seeing any mergers now, obviously, but um, uh, the industry went through some massive mergers. The latest, I think, was American-U.S. Air uh, merger. And, and typically, you say in the paper, you know, people focused on sort of the price effects of mergers. And you're focusing on here quality as proxied by on-time performance, um, which is a very interesting way of looking at it. Um, and so do you want to talk a bit about the data and, and about conclusions you reached? Yeah, glad to. So this one, there was a wave you know, between 2001 and 2011 of quite a few major mergers in the airline industry. And... Uh, we have data on, and this is publicly available, we have data on on-time performance um, yeah. of the airlines. And roughly speaking, that, that captures the idea of, um, there's a couple of metrics. There could be a uh, fraction of flights that are 15 minutes late, fraction of flights that are 30 minutes late. Um, and then we also have travel time. So actually look at, you know, how long does it take you to get from point A to point B uh, with this airline? And so what we do is we look at, you know, let's examine the performance of the airlines on that quality dimension and get a sense as to how, if and how that's changing with uh, a change in merger status. So as airlines combine, are they getting better in their performance on that? Are they getting worse? And we find in the short run, they get a little bit worse, although that's not even what we'd say statistically significant. So it's, it's not a very robust finding there. But then in the long run, we do see substantial improvement. And so, so, so you would argue uh, the efficiencies uh, that are coming through the merger is, in fact, uh, uh, very high. So it certainly suggests that. And I think yeah. there's a, one of the mainstreams of my research is looking at the relationship between competition and quality. And I find that a really interesting question because I think there's a, a natural tendency to say, okay, when there's more competition, we, one of the main results in economics is that more competition drives prices down. But a lot of people like to extend that to quality and say, okay, more competition means better quality. But that actually doesn't necessarily hold. It's not nearly as clean of a finding. Um, it's, I think really interesting, even in this paper, is I, we would argue that there does seem to be some efficiency gains that's happening here as to why they're performing better. But I think what's also interesting is that even if there weren't efficiency gains, 
the economic literature is not clear on whether more competition leads to higher or lower quality as a general result. Uh, under different circumstances, you can get either prediction. Yeah, so, so I was wondering, Jeff, uh, just, just speculating here. So when you have more competition, mm-hmm. I wondered if it also drives toward uh, you know, sort of differentiation based on cost. So let's say, you know, I'm in a market and I'm competing with five others. And I say, well, I, I you know, um, I, I want to create a product uh, that is a lower cost product. And by definition, lower cost product is going to be lower quality product too. So, so I wonder, is competition driving sort of differentiation between competitors so that they can sort of carve out their niches and survive in it? No, that's really good. I, no, that's, that's a great insight. That actually, we have another paper that looks at exactly that question. So that, that's exactly one of the mechanisms um, yeah. to influence how quality changes with competition. Um, so one of my better known papers is where we look at how incumbents respond to Southwest when they enter a route. And the idea being that Southwest had developed a, a business model where they generally had better on-time performance than everybody else for a long stretch of time. And, you know, this gets back to the counterintuitive nature of the relationship between competition and quality. And what we found is that on average, what happened was when Southwest came in, the incumbents got worse. And like the case, right, that it's like we're, we're losing on that dimension, so we're going to have to do better on others <laughs> the other way. Right. So, so they sort of take their eye off that that particular metric because they can win on the on that metric. That's right. Uh, and so, yeah, sort of create a new product that that is focused on other other things. Uh, OTP, though, and I think you mentioned this in the paper, is sort of a weird metric uh, because I've noticed, you know, I fly out of Providence, Rhode Island, quite a bit, and. Um, American wasn't there for a while. And then after the merger, American uh, is there because of USAIR. And I have noticed, you know, the OTP metrics uh, is clearly a function of how much time they're giving themselves. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and so, you know, if I'm flying to Philadelphia and I say it's going to take me an hour and a half and most often I can do it an hour and 15 minutes, I'm going to, I'm going to get very high metrics on OTP. Um, and I think that game is being played in the industry, right? No, you're absolutely right. And that's a big reason why a lot of our results, we focus on the travel time metric and not the percentage of, you know, 15, 30 minutes late. And it's exactly yeah. for that reason. Uh, I actually have a, another paper that just we just put out that is looking at uh, the schedule time game that, that these guys are playing. Uh, because that's, that clearly has been going on, is that over the years, the airlines slowly but surely have been lengthening the windows uh, of their schedule times. And that has obvious ramifications for on-time performance, right? So uh, then they can come back and say, wow, we're performing great. <laughs> we, we promised it would be five hours and we got it done in four and a half. It's incredible. When it should have been a three-hour flight, right? I mean, it's not that bad. <laughs> they they definitely are creeping open those those uh, those schedule times. Right, right. So so the conclusion one conclusion, if I understand this correctly, Jeff, is that a merge the effect of a merger on quality is ambiguous. Uh, there there are there are efficiency related positive effects. Maybe there are competition related negative effects. So we can't really predict. Uh, how quality is going to change. Is that one of the conclusions? So that's right. I think it's, you know, that's certainly not a new insight from us. But one thing that I think is particularly interesting about the quality component is when you think about the price side, the typical tension that people will point to with mergers is on the one hand, there's efficiencies that would push price down. On the other hand, there's increased market power that pushes price up. And there, there's your ambiguity, right? With quality, yeah. with quality, it's a little bit different because you could say we merge. Let's let's take for granted that there's efficiencies, or there could be efficiencies from the merger. So that mm. that may push quality up, but even that I, I'd say is not 100. percent But let's let's just take that for granted. What adds the extra level of complexity for me is that just looking at the market power side of it, 
not a clear prediction there. It's not the same as price. So saying that there's more market power after a merger then leads to lower quality, that is not a robust result in economics like the price result. Uh, so it adds another layer of, I think, interest in, in these types of analyses. Right, right. And, you know, these things are getting more and more complex to analyze because, um, you know, the substitutes that did not exist maybe 20 years ago exist now, you know, in terms of driving, driving fast or taking some other alternative uh, to get to a nearby city. Uh, and so, so sometimes, you know, the, the markets that are typically analyzed, uh, do you think we are really looking at all the substitutes that are available? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I guess not being on the inside of any of these kind of FTC or DOJ analyses of these mergers, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they're missing anything, but I guess I think I agree with your broader point that, um, you know, what, what might have been constituted as substitutes uh, 20 years ago, the, the set may look different today. Um, so I, I think the broader point I would say is that, um, you know, the, the specifics of the analysis certainly could change even for kind of a very established market like airlines. And there is a total cost um, measure that consumer might use, right? So as an example, we have the Amtrak Acela corridor here between Boston and Washington. Mm -hmm. If you take into account, um, you know, the need to go to the airport and then stand in line to, to get checked in, uh, the probability of the flight being late. Um, and so if you take all that cost into account, it, it's really difficult to see um, flying in the, you know, in the eastern seaboard between Boston and Washington, D.C. is actually dominant uh, compared to the train travel. So, so you know, so that, that makes it quite dif difficult uh, to, to look at, you know, what exactly, how, how exactly is the consumer making that decision? No, that's right. I think that was certainly warrants. Um, kind of a broader market definition, uh, if that's the case, right? That's, that's certainly one of the things the economists will be looking at is, do people realistically substitute between a flight from, say, Boston to New York and taking the train instead? Do you really see people making those kinds of switches, say, if the uh, price of the flight goes up? And I mean, anecdotally, I think that's that's certainly true. Is it true to an extent that, you know, the the model should strongly incorporate that. That's that's an empirical question for sure. But I think that's absolutely something that these guys would have to look at. Yeah, and, and one proxy is, you know, the price of the train ticket uh, appears to be close uh, to the airline ticket, mm. um, which at least tells me that they are actually directly competing uh, as an alternative. You know, the, the time difference, you know, other issue with airlines obviously is you're going to an airport. So if your business is in the city, the train actually gets you right into the city in this case. And so all the costs around that bundle that, that you're buying uh, are quite different in, in different modalities of travel. Um, and so, so it may not be a head-to-head -head competition, but it's uh, much more complex question i guess no i think that's right and and you can really make the case that what we're really talking about is just various dimensions of quality right so it's you know how much better is it for you to end up at you know penn station as opposed to laguardia uh your destination um and all those things i think definitely factor in um so i i could definitely see that as being part of the analysis yeah. Yeah. So the, the overall then, if, if I get this, uh, Jeff, the overall conclusion is that, yeah, price is more easy to analyze in the case of a merger. But when we think about quality, it's much more complex question. It's much more nuanced that um, that are you saying from a regulatory perspective, they really have to consider that more systematically? I There's definitely been a lot of calls to do that. I, and certainly... I don't want to pretend they don't do that. The, the, I think the regulatory agencies are aware that um, you know, quality is an important consideration when you think about welfare effects from mergers. Um, but, it's, it, but as you said, and I totally agree, it, it often is a bit more complex than the price component. Um, 
you know, just to kind of bring it to a very current issue, right? They, they just filed, DOJ just filed suit against Google. And if you yeah. look at that suit, you know, a lot of the thing, what they can't really point to price, certainly not from the consumer side. They could talk about it on advertisers, but they still make the case that consumers are being harmed. And how it's, it's really what along dimensions that really are quality dimensions, right? Uh, privacy, uh, innovation, um, number of ads or transparency of ads and searches, those kinds of things. Yeah. 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 That's a good segue into a recent paper. Uh, uh, so it's entitled how much privacy, how much is privacy <laughs> worth around the world and across platforms? Uh, I find this really fascinating. So using, you say using carefully designed discrete choice surveys, uh, we measure individuals' valuation of online privacy across countries, U.S., Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, and Germany, and data types, personal information, finances, biometrics, location, networks, communications, and web browsing. And, and you're finding significant difference, both in terms of countries as well as a type of information people want to protect, right? That's right. So, so, so what, so what did you find there? Oh, it's, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that paper that, that this was a seriously long project. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It, there's just a lot to it. So um, basically what we did was we, we offered, we went to six different countries. Let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. So it's U S Mexico, Germany, Argentina, uh, I believe it was Colombia, and Brazil. Brazil. Yes. Yeah. So we, we hit all six of those countries with online surveys that essentially gave them what, as you described, discrete choice experiments. And so we'd say, look, you let, let's take Facebook, for example. Here are some options uh, here. You might have your location data, your network data being shared or not. Uh, and then you also will get monthly payments or not, or payments of different levels. And what it does is it forces people to make trade-offs. So you say, okay, if they keep this part of my data private, uh, how much money am I willing to give up for that uh, or vice versa? And so we can see trade-offs in that manner. And it allows us to get a sense for, you know, how much do people value different types of privacy? Um, and so we then can compare those things across countries, across different types of platforms against across different types of uh, online data that people might uh, care about. Yeah. 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 And so, so are you asking them um, sort of to value that? Um, how much would it take for somebody to get that information? What, what is the real question? So this is very much driven by, what's actually out there in the market right now. So one of the things we, we discovered out just in the marketplace, um, there's one website called datacoup.com. And you essentially yeah. can give them your data, various types of data, and they'll give you monthly payments. And so hmm. that was really an inspiration for the way we designed these. Um, so the idea being hmm. if here came to you and said, all right, yeah, we, we have your location data. We can either keep that under, under wraps or we'll sell it to third parties that are interested. If you want it under wraps, then we'll not pay you anything. If you allow us to send it to third party carriers or third party users, uh, we'll pay you $3 a month or something like that. Hmm. We then give people lots of those choices. So we'd say, let's think about different types of data like location, your texts, your bank balance, um, and then consider different monthly payments that these firms might offer to you um, in exchange for the ability to share that data with third parties and then let people make those trade-offs. And from those trade-offs, we can then infer what their implied valuation is for those types of data. Okay. Uh, so, so I wondered, I was just thinking about this, Jeff. So I wondered if there's a bias so people who are willing to give their data out for some, you know, some money, um, presumably are different from people who want to protect the data. So from, a, from the buyer of this information, would they not, you know, get sort of a biased, 
information that may be less useful for them. Uh, in other words, suppose I, you know, I don't buy anything online, let's say, and I say, well, it's okay uh, to give my data out to third parties, uh, but it, it doesn't really affect me uh, at all. Uh, and so the so third parties get the data, but they can't really monetize it in any, any way. No, that's a really good point. So I guess in some ways we're averaging that out. Um, so that yeah. certainly could be a factor in any individual's decision is, you know, how much, how many bits do I really think I'm spending the internet, I think is what you're getting at. And, uh, and if that's low, then maybe they say, well, then by all means, right, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I think that's right. So we don't parse that out. So you can definitely think of ours as, um, you know, allowing for all those types of people in the data set um, and averages across them. Although we do at least do some rough measures of the distribution. So you could see, you know, uh, different countries, is there a wider or narrower distribution in valuations? Um, and like one of the interesting findings that we had was Germany seemed to be the most homogenous in their privacy valuation compared to the other countries. And, and they value uh, put, uh, finances, yeah. right? M more highly than anything That's else. right. So that, that was one of the key findings is uh, maybe, the, maybe what's unsurprising is that Germany on average came out on top in terms of their highest valuation for privacy. Um, but I think what's also interesting is that that's largely driven by their protectiveness of their financial information. Um, so they, they're not a big fan of uh, sharing their balance, sharing cash withdrawal information from their bank. But once you, if you extrapolate from that, uh, then there's not a whole lot of difference between the six countries. That's, that's a huge driver of what makes Germany stand out. Is the, I don't know if you looked at this, uh, is the, the financial fraud type activity is the frequency higher in Germany? I'm just wondering if there's any kind of conditioning. That's a good question. I don't know. I That's something we definitely could look into. That, and that would make sense. That could be a driver um, if there's if it's just more salient for them. Uh, there's, there's a higher right. risk for, for whatever reason. Um, I don't, there was nothing that came to mind specifically, um, but that certainly could be an explanation. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, we will take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about the, the mobile attention paper, uh, as well as the broadband user behavior. Paper. Sounds great. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. We are back. Um, so I want to jump into another paper. Uh, it's entitled The Persistence of Broadband User Behavior implications for universal service and competition policy. Uh, so you say in several markets, firms compete not for co consumer expenditure, but consumer attention. Uh, and you say we examine user priorities over the allocation of their time and interpret that behavior in light of policy discussions over universal service, data caps, and related policy topics, such as merger analysis. So. This is a very interesting way to, to, to look, to think about this. So the, the users have a, a, a constant budget of time and you're asking how are they allocating that time to the variety of um, options in front of them, right? And, and, and that information um, gives uh, better insights than just looking at, you know, sort of how they are spending their money. I think in a lot of markets, that's becoming the case. Um, yeah. I actually just was speaking on a panel earlier this week where we were talking about the attention economy. Um, and that, that's becoming a bigger focus. Um, and kind of bring us back to the Google suit. That, that's a big part of this, right? That what you see a lot of now, especially when you think about big tech firms, 
there's a lot of zero price offerings where what they want is for you to be at their site. So, you know, Facebook certainly comes to mind. You know, you can go on Facebook, you don't pay anything, and they you can hang out there all day and they'd be perfectly happy with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so so the attention budget is 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 a constant budget. Um you know, money could be uh, uh, varying, but attention, you can't really do much. Uh, you got only 24 hours a day. And so, so, so Google and Facebook and other companies like that uh, essentially is now monopolizing that firm budget of the consumer, right? So if they are, you know, if, if somebody is on Facebook all the time, um, that person is not really able to get any information from any other avenue. So this is really true monopoly power uh, <laughs> than, than, uh, than other, other, other areas we have seen, right? Well, I'm always reluctant to, to come down <laughs> to a, a clear verdict on monopoly power, but I guess it, I would look at it that, you know, certainly that would be a case where Facebook, you know, is, is garnering a big share of your time and attention and then I think an important question would be is, you know, how how kind of locked into that are you? You know, is are there competing products and services that might be able to take your attention away from Facebook? And that certainly that's what Facebook's worried about. Um, you know, that was a lot of the controversy about them acquiring Instagram, right? Is that Instagram was seen as a, a big threat. And why? Because People like to spend a lot of their time and attention on Instagram. Um, and that very easily could be a major substitute for Facebook. Um, and then if they acquire them, there, there you go. It, it takes away that threat. Um, so it, it's becoming a, a central issue, I think, in competition analysis, thinking about how are these firms competing for consumers' eyeballs and attention and time. Right. Yeah, and... Um, Jeff, I don't know if, if this is the way that you, you think about it. So there are switching costs mm -hmm. for a consumer, right? So suppose I get very familiar with Facebook's, you know, sort of uh, features and how the website is laid out and so on. And even if I have uh, equal quality information in an alternative, it is still quite expensive for me to switch. Um and so, so just the existence of an alternative, I don't know if, it, if it's really going to do much. Is, is, that, is that a way to think about it or no? Oh, well, I would certainly agree that is a way to think about it. I, that's an empirical question. So yeah. it, it could be. I think I could certainly imagine a world where consumers would find it costly to switch for all the reasons you described. They, there's familiarity, there's learning costs, all kinds of things. Um, but you could also come up with stories where um, it's not so costly. It would be relatively easy or you know, there's multi-homing going on. There might be people that um, engage with multiple social media sites um, and find comfort in all of them and, and kind of toggle between them. Um, so that it, it actually, that's, that kind of motivates what we were looking at because I, I guess when we started that project, one of the things I was interested in looking at was simply how do um, different online video business models compete? And when we started to dive into that, I realized we don't even have much of an understanding of just the general attention allocation patterns that people have online. That's, <laughs> right. that's what really got us to work on, on what we did. Yeah. And also I think there is some sort of, network effect too right so if if all my friends are on facebook and i'm on facebook and i say i find a you know more interesting platform out there if i if i were to switch to the new platform my friends are not there so it, it wouldn't really make a difference right so i so it's almost like i cannot switch because i'm sort of tied to that network that i'm part of no that's I, that's absolutely true i think you know, there's a couple important points to make there. And one is Facebook was not the first on, on the scene, right? The, yeah. You know, one of the, the brilliant moves that they had was how they rolled out the network effects. 
in order to get kind of a, a stronger buy-in by their customers, right? So starting with the Ivy Leagues and moving out through college campuses. And as someone who was kind of in that age group at the time, um, I, I, I can almost see exactly what happened, even anecdotally. It's, I remember the, the Friendsters, MySpaces, right, that predated Facebook. And why, why were those not appealing to me? It's because it just felt like a, a random group of people. With Facebook, if you went on and you were at Harvard, for example, and it started out, odds were that you had some small degree of separation between you and the other people that were on. And so if you just kind of browsed, you know, who's on that site, uh, odds were that you had had some, you know, small path to a connection to a good number of those people. And all of a sudden, then it has value. Uh you're interested in those networks. I'm not interested in some random person in, in Colorado, right? On <laughs> right. Yeah, so so they're buying not just you, but they're buying all your friends all in, the, in the one bundle. You have an observation here, Jeff, if I understand this correctly, it goes a little bit uh, against this. So you say in our analysis, we assess how households supply their attention along various dimensions, such as a concentration of attention across the universe of sites and the amount of attention expenditure per domain visit. Mm -hmm. And you say, remarkably, we find no change in how households allocated their attention, despite, uh, despite drastically changing where they allocated it. So if I understand this correctly, they, they, they can move from platform to platform, but whatever they pick, they, they seem to have a profile that goes back to what they're really interested in. Is that is that the way to understand it or no? I, I think that's roughly right. So just to kind of lay this out, because I think this is really the, the main contribution of the paper. What, what one of the things that interested us was, you know, we have, we're in the world of big data now. We have all these ways of cutting the data. Um, let's try and think of meaningful cuts of the data. What are some ways that we might care in this case characterize attention allocation that that might capture some you know interesting underlying behavioral patterns and so the basic premise of this paper was to say okay let's a couple very fundamental dimensions along which we might capture how attention is being allocated is what we call breadth and depth so breadth would be you know how do you spread it across let's say different websites is it concentrated just on Facebook or do you go to Facebook a little bit, New York Times, CNN, ESPN, right? Spread out a bunch of, across a bunch of sites. And then depth is when I go somewhere, do I hang out there for a long time or is it a relatively short visit? Um, and so just constructing those two measures, we were able to then draw out the general distribution of breadth and depth across individuals of 2008 and 2013. And I think the this really cool result of the paper is if you just plot that distribution, as, as you might have seen in the paper, we have these two heat maps, we call them. Yeah. And whenever I present this, I always enjoy this because I'll, I'll put up the one from 2008 and then I'll ask people, what do you think happened between 08 and 2013? And I'll remind them of all the things that changed, right? Smartphones came on. This is all on the home PC. So smartphones right. came out, streaming starts, right? There's all kinds of major changes. So everybody gives me different answers on how it's going to change. And then I put up the 2013 graph and I'll have people tell me, oops, you put the 2008 graph. <laughs> and I'll say, nope, it's, that's the 2013 completely different set of people, a new random sample or somewhat random sample. There, there are some corrections to be made, but it, it was amazingly stable in the overall distribution. Yeah, yeah, so creatures of habit. Yes. Uh, that, uh, so this is so interesting. So on the x-axis of the heat map, you have sort of duration. And on the y-axis, you have fraction of time uh, in the session. Uh, and so, so let me understand this a little bit, Jeff. So uh, are we saying that the, the breadth and depth, um, le let's say we have the 2008 data and 
you know, we can do some machine learning on it and we can come up with an algorithm and we can actually use that algorithm in terms of predicting breadth and depth for a new customer in 2013 and we'll get it reasonably right in spite of all the technology developments that went on? Ah, that's a good question. So remember that those maps are in the aggregate. So you were saying that the distribution is stable to the next but any given individual uh right there there might be some predictive factors and there certainly are um but it does it would give you a sense as to what the unconditional predictive capability would be because then you could say okay here's how people are distributed along the con the the breadth measure here's how people are distributed yeah. along the depth measure um and then actually later in the paper we do try to identify some demographic characteristics that are predictive of people being you know, deeper divers or, you know, more dispersed viewers, those kinds of things. But but they're not actually all that predictive. It's it's actually quite stunning that <laughs> aren't don't don't tell me a lot. It actually wouldn't give me very good machine learning predictions uh, kinds of at the at the individual level. So the features features of the individual like demographics, education and so on don't allow you to predict where they're going to end up. Um, but the aggregate, there's sort of an aggregate uh, stability, yes. exactly right, um, right uh, of the population. Now, we don't know if there's migration. Uh, I mean, it, it is, it's quite possible, right, uh, that the individuals sort of stay where they are too. You mean in terms of they, they kind of just do the same old, same old? Yeah, same old, same so old. So that's possible, but one of the things that we also look at is how – the 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 specifics of what people do did change. so you see a, a major change in what the, the the proportion of time was at different sites so what's clearly happening is people are changing what websites they go to but general breadth and depth patterns remain relatively stable okay okay so it's sort of uh, and it's interesting that you don't find any predictability from demographics and so on. So it's not like we can assign an individual's personality or, or you know, uh, education or something like that to say, yeah, we understand that individual. That is where, uh, that is how the breadth and depth combination is going to be. There is no predictability there. But uh, generally speaking, that configuration is stable. Uh, but, but what we have shown here is the, that configuration is stable for the population, right? That is what we can do. That's right. And, and it's, even though we can't fully, we can't demonstrate it at the individual level, it's suggestive that at the individual level, there's stability, right? Because the only way you get such stability in the aggregate, despite lots of individual changes from 2008 to 2013, is if they all canceled out almost perfectly. Now that's possible, but that seems unlikely. Um, I would I would argue that you know, our explanation is that people are creatures of habit. Their breadth and depth patterns are relatively stable, and that's why we're seeing the aggregate stability. Yeah. So going back to the um, the Google lawsuit. Huh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so here's a company that has a tremendous amount of data, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, supposing there is a competition, they have to determine this sort of trial and error. Um, Google sort of already knows not only the, the population's expectations, and they can design things that just fits into that red part of that heat map. Um, and that data is not really available for a, for a possible competitor uh that's that's entirely possible um i guess you know the the one counter i would give to that is uh you know some academic researchers were able to get their hands on some data that they were able <laughs> to pull that off too um so there is you know google hasn't quite cornered the market on data here but but i i certainly would concede that that they have you know a, a significant data depository that they, they can, you know, learn quite a bit from. Right, right. Yeah. But what I was hinting at is they, they, they have a lot more 
data than than you used in the yes. paper. Yeah, process, that's right? And and so if we are finding this conclusion robust, which is that the population's expectations, behavior, configuration is very stable over time, uh, they are in a much better position to take advantage of it. If that were very noisy, one could argue a competitive a competitor will be at a, you know sort of an equal footing uh, with an incumbent. Uh, but if that is really stable, I would argue the incumbent is in a much better position to uh, to design products. Uh, I have to think more on that. I mean, I, <laughs> that's, that's a loaded one. I I don't know. You know, I guess the reason I'm hesitating on that one is because I almost would argue the opposite in that if if it was highly idiosyncratic, right? There was a lot of variation over time, for example. Um, I would almost say then that would put Google in a better spot because they'd be in a better position to be able to pick that up because they have such a large data set, whereas the, the competitors with smaller data might struggle to be able to, to identify, you know, some of the more nuanced patterns that are going on. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's a great question. I, this has been a hot topic in economics is, you know, not to take us on a tangent, but I think this is related is this idea of, yeah. you know, does, does data per se create natural monopoly? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people coming down on different sides of that argument, but I, I feel like that's at the heart of, of one of the things you're, you're highlighting. Um, and I think it's a worthy question. I think it's, we're entering a world where there's so much data and you've got a handful of firms that really have a whole lot of data. Uh, you know, to, is that creating by itself monopoly power? I, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, and uh, I don't know too much about this, Jeff, but if it is a natural monopoly, then uh, the, the regulatory framework that you want to pursue is different, right? Uh, because clearly consumers are gaining from the existence of Google. It is synonymous with search. Uh, in fact, you can demonstrably show that you get better results from Google than any other search engine that's out there. Um, and so, so are we are we going toward Google being a natural monopoly, like a utility? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, in which case it's a different question. No, it's right? a great question. And I, the thing is, though, it's it's not. I, I think it's at least right now it's misplaced to only think of Google as the the potential natural monopolist here. Right? The other another company that gets these questions a lot is Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. So I've I've seen you know. One of their, their chief economists is Pat Byery. I've seen him speak on, on this before. And, you know, they're, they're very well aware that, you know, there are, there's concerns that, oh, you know, Amazon has so much data. How are other retailers going to be able to compete with them? And it, again, it's, it's an interesting question because they're, the pushback that people will make is that, you know, when you get to the amount of data that Amazon has, it's almost like they have more yeah. questions than they could possibly answer. Uh, so it, it does create another set of problems that it, it's almost like, you know, do diseconomies of scale start to kick in at some point? Um, but it, it's definitely, a, I, that one's a very central question in economics these days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities. Uh, again, in Amazon's case, you know, I like, I love the Amazon, you know, my products getting delivered in right. two days. Uh, you know, uh, so consumer consumers can actually see the benefits that's right. too, um, and so yeah, so that's why it's a complex question. I I want to um, finish up with uh, you uh, another paper that I don't know if it is uh, coming out, um, um, Jeff. It's it's uh, entitled uh, Mobile Attention, um, where you you look at sort of theoretical and empirical analysis of mobile internet usage in the presence of usage-based pricing uh, in the form of data caps. So uh, the cellular companies always had some sort of a data cap, even if they call those plans um, you know, um, unlimited, uh, they, they sort of put limits on it, even without you knowing it, uh, after you consume some amount of information, right? So, so, so you're looking at this, how are people affected by these types of 
plans and their pricing and their behavior. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, this is kind of a natural extension of of the paper we just discussed. So the the prior paper was looking at home internet usage. So thinking about on your your primary PC at home, and then, you know, natural yeah. question is what what kind of patterns do we see when we're talking about mobile um, in terms of how people allocate their attention? And I think one of the, the key results of this paper, I, I have a much older paper that um, is, is probably too old for us to discuss, but it has a primary result that has really kind of stood the test of time. And it was the fact that income predicts people adopting the internet. So go back, think back to like late 90s, early 2000s, and you've got a much yeah. larger discrepancy in who has the internet and who doesn't. Um, what we found was income was a predictor of someone adopting. So if you had more income, you were much more likely to adopt the internet. But then conditional on adopting, uh, lower income meant you used it more. So lower income people yeah. spent more time on the internet, but were less likely to adopt in the first place, which is counter to what you often see kind of usage goods, because typically we think of the people that are going to use it the most are the ones most likely to buy it. Um, but the internet defies that. Um, and so we looked at a similar thing with, with mobile and we actually found a U shape, uh, well, a hill shape, sorry, upside down use. So the, as you get more income, your usage actually does increase and then it tapers off and starts to decrease. And the argument is that this suggests that you have a similar pattern to the home PC. It's just that the data caps are bending the curve at the lower end. And so, so you made you know sort of the opportunity cost argument for the for the high end, right? So, as your income increases, uh, you use less of it because you just don't have the time uh, to use it. Uh, and perhaps there's another argument on the lower end of that in terms of lower use. Uh, but but you're saying both in uh, mobile as well as on the on the PC, uh, that sort of a inverse U type relationship exists. Well, so certainly on the high end. So the if you think about dividing the graph down the middle, so imagine a vertical line at the the median income level. If you yes. go from that line yes. to the right, things look very similar for mobile and and home. In that more income leads to less usage. It's on the left side that things look different. So on the home PC, the pattern would continue. So lower income, the usage would continue to go up. On mobile, as the income gets lower, the usage actually starts to go down. And what we argue is that's suggestive that the data caps might start to bite for low income people. So they might be more likely to have to buy a capped plan because it's cheaper. Um, and so while in an unconstrained world, they might have consumed the most. In the constrained world, they end up consuming less than some of their higher income uh, counterparts. Right. And you have some prescriptions. Um, I don't have the paper in front of me, but in terms of how companies should think about it, right? Uh, how should they price it? And whether they should have data caps at all, whether it's uh, revenue maximizing. Uh, you had some observations there too from a from a, from a company policy. Yeah. So one way to think about that pricing scheme is to say, you know, it, it's really a, a price discrimination scheme. You say, I'm going to offer you. Let's keep it simple. Two different options. You can have the unlimited plan that costs more, or you can have one with a data cap that costs less. And we'll let people self-select into which plan they like more. And one of the questions that's kind of floating out there is, you know, we, we definitely see firms doing that, right? So that, that's a reality. We do see plans that have that flavor. And is what's driving that, though? Is it, are they using it because it's a, it's a revenue enhancer or is it more cost-driven, right? So um, do they need to put caps, you know, have capped plans to try and manage um, the, the volume on their systems? And one of the things that we show is that if the demand looks like the way it suggests from our earlier paper and from the, the analysis we do in this paper in terms of how usage relates to income, uh, it suggests that using that type of price discrimination scheme is unlikely to be a revenue enhancer. Um, 
it, the nature of, of how people are using it. So that having the, typically what we think of again is that the so-called high types, the ones who are willing to pay more, the ones more likely to adopt uh, in the, you know, when you think about just adoption of the internet would be the ones to use it the most. So, but in this case, kind of like the home internet, the ones who might be most likely to afford and be uh, purchasing the unlimited plans actually might be the ones who on average use it less. Uh, because there's this disconnect between the income and the usage um, preferences. And so you want to sort of use, um, you call it usage intensity rather than duration. That's right. So we have a much clearer pattern when it comes to the intensity of use uh, and its relationship to income. Um, so the way we measure intensity is uh, we look at the number of page views that, um, that these guys do when they go to an individual site. Uh, and so that has a more monotonic relationship. Uh, so it might be, um, if you're thinking about it from the firm standpoint, if you think about it from as intensity versus usage in terms of how we might try to price discriminate according to someone, you know, trying to identify someone's income, the intensity might be a, a better way to, to sort people out than by using their usage patterns. Okay, okay. Um, so in conclusion, Jeff, I want to ask you sort of a loaded question. Okay. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Uh, so, you know, the metrics tell us there is uh, half a dozen or so companies in the U.S. Uh, they, their market caps today is about one third, close to one third of the S&P 500 market cap. Um, many of them are over a trillion dollars in market cap. Um, so we, we clearly have a very biased, you know, sort of an industry uh, position here that few companies dominate uh, certain areas. Now, consumers are benefiting from it, uh, at least on the surface. Uh, and then so, so you, you mentioned this. This is a hotly debated uh, idea in economics and, and um you know, uh, Justice Department and others are, are beginning to look at this more systematically. Uh, where do you think we will come out uh, on, on this question? I'm really glad that you asked that question. I thought for sure you were going to say, is this a good thing or not? And that's, that's that would be even more loaded. Uh, so where do I think we're going to come out? I, You know, the, the tea leaves right now, if you're reading them, certainly points to there's a lot of bipartisan agreement that that there are issues to be addressed um, with some of these companies. I mean, in the yeah. Google lawsuit is obviously, you know, the maybe the first shoe to drop. Um, so I, I guess if I'm just making a prediction, I would say we're we're in for a run of some some real scrutiny here. I, I don't know how hmm. how deep it's going to go. And but I don't think a change of administration is necessarily going to make a difference, right? I, I don't I don't see a lot of disagreement. I, you know, in our polarized times, this is yeah. one of the areas where there doesn't seem to be a ton of disagreement between the two parties. Yeah, this is uh, this is one item I believe President Trump and Senator Warren agree on, if I, if you can believe it. Sorry, I lost I lost that last part. Uh, you know, I was saying this is one one area that you have agreement from President Trump and Senator yeah, Warren, right. and that's a feat. That is that is something. Uh, so, if, if see why the CEOs of these companies are regularly visiting Washington. So they they know they're they're under the hot the hot lights right now. Um, so, I, I guess my prediction is we're, we're definitely going to see a, a run of scrutiny here, um, but you know. It, is it going to go so far as to break up one of these companies? That's that's a that's a tough one to call. I, you know, Microsoft certainly was on the chopping block in the late nineties, um, and that didn't ultimately happen. Yeah. And you know, there are arguments that could be made in both directions. So I think you know, at the very least, as an economist, as a researcher, um, I think there's value in in some examination here, trying to learn more about these markets and what are threats to competition and innovation and what aren't. Um, but you know, are, how far they're going to go with this, that we're, I guess we're going to find out pretty soon. I, the wheels are in motion, that's for sure. 
<laughs> is there any support, Jeff, uh, of this idea of natural monopoly and some sort of rate setting type uh, uh, type policy, or is that it's that too uh, too much? You mean thinking of these guys as natural monopolies? Natural monopolies and have you know rate uh, you know some kind of return on on them rather. You know, I I haven't heard that specific proposal, but I've definitely heard you know conversation about natural monopoly. I've I've heard people talk about having a a digital regulator. Um, You know, as with anything else, I mean, as an economist, uh, key word for us is trade offs, right? So, yes, you know, there there might be some real competitive concerns here, um, but then it's. We're not comparing that to a perfect world. We're comparing that to a world where we're then going to have to have regulators telling people how to do things. Um, and so it's, it's trying to get a handle on, you know, is, is the laissez-faire approach, you know, allowing so much harm that intervention would clearly lessen that. Um, and that, that's the open question, I think. And we're going to start answering that, I think, with this Google lawsuit. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, This has been great, Jeff. Uh, Thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, yeah, good luck with this research. Thanks very much. It's very topical. Thank you. Bye.